All right, well, good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm glad to be here with you this morning, and uh, we're going to take a look in the book of Acts. Together, we've been going through a series on the book of Acts, and right now we are in Acts chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 20 with us, I'd appreciate that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one somewhere near you, and so you can pick that one up and uh, turn over to page 929. As we've been going through the, the book of Acts, we're kind of coming towards the kind of the final section of that book, and um, so some, some pretty big stuff is starting to happen, and so we're going to read all of Acts chapter 20 this morning, but we're going to focus in specifically on the second half of it. So if you would follow along with me, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you 
among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all, They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The word of the Lord. So um, there's a a tendency. We've we've kind of been trained and and we have a tendency in our own lives to view history. and, And in a lot of ways, our own lives as well, but especially history, through the lens of, like, big moments. Like, big, world-changing, everything, there was, everything was one way, and then this happened, and then everything was different. Right? Like, like we talk about events like, like 9-11. And the world was, was like it was, and then 9-11, and then everything after it. Or, or um, um, the, the Pearl Harbor bombing, and, and the United States was like this, and then that happened, and the whole world changed, or the Boston Tea Party, or the Declaration of Independence, or these big events, right? And even in our lives, we think in those terms, like, like my life was going along like normal, and then this thing, boom, and then everything changed, and it's, I don't know, it's graduation, or it's you got married, or you had a kid, or you got a divorce, or somebody died, or whatever it was, it was life, event, everything else after that. But the truth is, if, if we can kind of step back and really look at the way the world works, the way our own lives have worked, that those events, as much as they might seem like, like a transformative moment, the truth is, changes happen very slowly. For good or for bad, Changes happen slowly over time. So all of those big historical events, they were, they were big, they happened, they were huge. But they were the result of things that had built up and built up and built up slowly, slowly, slowly over the years. And, and in your own life, those things that changed, yeah, those moments happened and they were huge, but they were the result of things that had happened in your life slowly over time. As much as we want to look at these big moments, the truth is, both for for good and for ill, 
Changes are slow, they're subtle, and they're usually unnoticed while they're happening. We usually don't see how things are changing until there's some big moment. And what that moment does, it doesn't change the world, it doesn't change our lives, it changes how we view, and it helps us to recognize and notice what's already changed. This is true in our spiritual lives as well, and it's true for us as a church. Churches can change. Sometimes churches can change for the worse, and it doesn't happen overnight. As much as if you've ever been in a situation where something really bad happened in a church, where a church changed fundamentally from the way it had been, as much as it can be easy to look at, like, well, this moment was what changed everything, the truth is, change happens slowly over time. And Paul understood that. And that's why in this passage, as we're going to look at today, Paul warned the leaders specifically in this church in Ephesus, but we're going to see all of us in every church throughout time, that we have to keep a careful watch on ourselves and on our church, lest we will slowly over time drift from who we should be in Christ. Before we get too far into this, I, I, I do want to say this. Um, I was preparing this sermon this week, and as I was thinking about it, and I'm preparing it and thinking about Paul and Ephesus and all this stuff that happened thousands of years ago, and then it, it really, um, it just hit me. This is not hypothetical. For a lot of people here right now today, you've been through this. You've been in a church where, and it can happen in a lot of different ways, but you've been in a church where a leader failed. You've been in a church where the church changed, fundamentally changed from what it was and what it should be. And you've gone through the, the, the hurt and the pain that is caused by that kind of drifting. So I, I, I just, I just want to be clear, when I, when I talk about this, when we talk about this, I, I know, I have friends here who have been through this. I, I know that some of you, this is your life, this happened, this was you, you still have scars because of it. And I know that if I know people who have gone through that, that there are other people here that I, I don't even know have been through the same thing. So I don't say any of this lightly this morning. It would be easy to look at this as like a theoretical, like, we hope this never happens here. But I'm painfully aware that for many of you, this, this has happened, and it, it still hurts. So, understand that as we go into this. That's why Paul's warning is so urgent 
to us. So let's get some context. Let me talk through what's going on here, and then we'll, we'll focus in on exactly what it is that Paul says. Um, like I said, we're kind of coming towards the end of a lot of what's been going on. The book of Acts is, in broad sense, it's the story of how the early church spread from the time that Jesus, um, after his resurrection, and, and he returned to heaven, and then the, the gospel was spread throughout the world, and specifically, a lot of it is the story of Paul traveling around and spreading the gospel and starting churches throughout the then-known world, and he goes on several different separate trips, and this, we're kind of coming to the end of what, what we refer to as his third missionary journey. He's gone out, he started churches, he's come back, and he's gone out this third time, and this, this journey is a little different than the others, and a lot of what Paul's doing and what we see at the beginning of this chapter and, and on through is that he's going back to churches that he's already, have already been started. He's already been there before. He's visiting them again. And he's encouraging their leaders. He's encouraging the believers in those churches. He's, he's pressing them on to keep going and to keep serving. And he takes, and it's kind of hard in, in some of these because the, it's like we went there, we went there, we went there, we went there. And even if you have a map and you're trying to follow it, it kind of becomes overwhelming. But, but if you kind of trace this along, one of the things you would notice about this is that he's taking a pretty circular route. Uh, not, I mean, not circular, like a circle literally, but it's a weird route. It's not the most direct route he could have taken. And he mentions a couple reasons. One is because he's trying to get back to these specific churches and talk to them. The other one is because he knows and he's heard rumors that there are people who want to kill him. And so he's kind of going out of his way to try to avoid those people, as I think you and I probably would as well. Um, This is interesting because what we're going to see later on, the way Paul, when he addresses the Ephesian elders... He knows what's coming, and he knows how this is all going to end for him. He knows Paul doesn't have, like, a retirement plan, okay, because he has, like, he he sees very clearly where this is headed. He's not going to end up puttering around in his garage while his grandkids are playing in the yard. Like, this is going to end poorly for him, okay, and he knows that. He knows that his life is going to end as a result of, there are a lot of people who don't like him spreading the gospel. And we just saw that last week in Ephesus, and we've seen it throughout the book of Acts. And then it even goes, even goes so far as to tell us, the Holy Spirit's told him. This is not going to, you know, be all roses and, and, and you know, happy retirement party for you, Paul. He knows that, but at the same time, he has a desire to to build up disciples and to share the gospel as much as possible. So he takes kind of an out-of-the-way route, and he's going around because he wants to have as many opportunities to share the gospel as he can. Specifically, Luke focuses in on he stops in the city of Troas, and he meets with the believers there, and he spends a long time talking to them because he knows. He knows where this is headed. He knows his time's coming to an end, and he knows this is the last time he's going to see these people. And so he spends a long time talking to them. He's He's planning to just meet with them, and he's going to leave the next day, but knowing that he's going to leave the next day, he just kind of keeps going, and keeps going, and keeps going. It gets really late. Um, it goes past midnight. It's hot in the room. There's a, a young man, we don't know how old he is, um, named Eutychus, who's sitting next to the window, and Paul just kind of keeps going, and Eutychus falls asleep, and he falls out the window, and he dies. And, um, 
you think I preach long sometimes. That's a horrible joke, but I'm pretty convinced that's the reason that, that Luke included this story in the Bible is so that preachers could make that joke, okay? Um, so, but those of you in the balcony, you might want to take that as a warning, just a thought. Um, but Paul, Paul goes down, he's revived, he continues talking to them, and then finally pulls himself away. He doesn't even go to bed that night because he's so, this is the thing though, here's the, the emotion behind this is so strong because he loves these people. These are his friends, these are his, in a spiritual sense, they're like his children. He's lived with them, he's known them, he's seen this church be, be, be planted and grow, and he knows he's never going to see them again. And so he doesn't even go to bed. He just stays up all night long talking to them. But finally, he, he, he has to pull himself away. He travels around. Um, but then it, it starts to, to, to occur to him. He's looking at the calendar, and he knows he wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost, the celebration, the, 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 the uh, Jewish holiday of Pentecost. He wants to be there by that day. And so he, he decides to skip Ephesus. He tries to kind of just stay out of Asia because he'll take a more direct route. But he really wants to talk to the elders in Ephesus because he was there for three years because, and if you've been here for the past several weeks, we talked about everything that went on in Ephesus. They were through some really intense stuff together. He knows the culture of that city is very, still very hostile towards Christianity. He needs to talk to these guys, so he sends word, and they actually make a trip down. It's about 30 miles, which for us in a car is nothing, but for them, that's a pretty big trip. But the elders from the church in Ephesus come down, and Paul gets to talk to them. And again, he knows this is his last chance. He knows, and he tells them he's never going to see them again. He needs to talk to them. He needs to leave them with some final thoughts. And so that's what he does. He starts by reminding them, by stressing to them how much he loves them. He reminds them of their shared history together. We spent three years together. We lived together. We shared our lives. You know me. You know I love you. And knowing what he's about to tell them, it's really, really important that he stresses, I love you. I care for you. Everything I'm about to say is said with the deepest amount of compassion for you. But he says, but you also know this about me. I love you, and I love you so much that I don't shrink back from telling you the truth. And he says, even, even when there were, were trials, when we went through, through all kinds of intense persecution, I still was bold, Paul is telling them, he was still bold to share the gospel, to be super clear, this is the message you need to hear. And he said, he said it to everybody, Greeks and Jews, it didn't matter who it was, it didn't matter what the consequences were. He said, you know me, I speak the truth because it's important. Then he tells him, he says, look, I know, my life, these journeys, everything I've been doing, it's coming to an end. He tells them specifically, none of you here are ever going to see me again. And then think about that, because that's like, we're reading this, and it's just kind of like a you know, an overview of a very historical event, but think about the emotion behind that statement. A leader, someone they had trusted for so long, someone they stood side by side with, 
through intense, intense times. Not just the big stuff that we read about, but in their own lives as they lived their lives and they went through their own personal trials and difficulties and joys and celebrations. And this was the guy. For many of them, this was the guy who first told them the gospel, who introduced them to Jesus, changed their lives. And he says, I am never going to see you again. We might not even fully be able to understand this because in our culture, in our day, when somebody leaves, when somebody goes away, because of technology, because of the world we live in now, there is almost no chance that anybody can go almost anywhere that we would know we would never see them again. But Paul could say this and know for sure, this is true, I'm never going to see any of you again. And so I need to tell you something really, really important. And this is what it is. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul, this is what Paul says. I have to tell you this because this is huge. This is coming. Wolves are going to come in. Okay, common metaphor in the Bible that elders are shepherds and the congregation is the, the flock or the sheep and that the job, the role of the elder is to care for the sheep. And so within that metaphor, he says there's wolves coming in. Now, if you were a shepherd, a literal shepherd in that day, um, you would know and you would understand that you have to be on the watch for wolves. But literal wolves and sheep look very, very different from each other, right? If, if, If you're a shepherd, you should be able to tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep when you see it. Okay, if you can't, maybe think about a career change, okay? Because this is like fundamental basic stuff. But Paul's using a metaphor here. And the metaphor is that we, as as Christians, as believers, as members of a church, we're sheep. We, we (laughs) We are helpless and needy people who desperately need God's grace. And God raises up leaders, shepherds, to help us, to guide us, to lead us in the gospel. And we need that help. We need that assistance. But Paul's saying that there are some people who come into the church who are not sheep. They're wolves. And what do wolves do? Wolves, well, wolves eat the sheep. Wolves come in. Wolves are people, wolves are people in the church. And here's where this gets tricky. Unlike real sheep and wolves, they look exactly the same. In a church, visually, by outward appearances, you can't tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf. A wolf in a church is somebody who wants to use the church like the way a wolf would use a flock of sheep. 
for their own personal gain and their own personal benefit, without regard, without care for who gets hurt in the process. A wolf looks at sheep and sees what that sheep can give to them. You know, food. A wolf in a church setting, a a wolf is a person who looks at other people, their fellow Christians, or fellow Christians in the sense that they're probably not really believers if they're a wolf, but they look at the other Christian, the other people in a church, not as people, but they look at them as, what can I get from them? How can this person benefit me? How can the church as a whole benefit me? What can it give to me? What can it do for me? How can it help me, I don't know, in my career, in my social status? And it's not about how can I be a part of this, it's about what can this do for my benefit? And Paul says to the elders from Ephesus that just as much as a real shepherd needs to be able to tell the difference between sheep and wolves, and that's easy, you as an elder, you as leaders in the church, you need to be able to see the difference between sheep and wolves. And it's not as simple and clear-cut. For many, many, many reasons, it's not as easy. They look the same. In real life, sheep are sheep and wolves are wolves. Within a church, that, that, that can shift. Someone who is or looks like or seems to be a sheep can become a wolf. But the stakes are just as high. And so that's heavy, and Paul tells them this, and it's heavy. And then he drops the real bomb. Like, that's enough, right? Paul says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. It's up to you now. But you need to know there's going to be some big trouble. And up to this point, there'd been a lot of trouble from outside the church. Persecution from the culture. Persecuting the people who were believers. He says, you need to know there's going to be just as much, maybe more trouble coming from inside the church. Okay, that's heavy. And then he says this, and, verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says, there are some of you right here, right now, that I'm talking to, who are going to be wolves. There are some of you right here, right now, who are leaders in this church. You're elders in this church. You've traveled all these miles to come see me. You've shifted your entire life. You've rearranged your entire life to to take up a leadership responsibility in this church. You've given so much, you've sacrificed so much of yourself to lead this church, and you, some of you I'm talking to right now, are going to turn away from the faith and you're going to take people with you. Wow, right? I mean, could you imagine that? Could you imagine being there in in that conversation? You're there with your friends, your fellow leaders. You've just spent this this long journey together, but it's been a good time because you work together. You've 
you've built this camaraderie together. This is your team. These are your, your friends. These are your fellow laborers together. You've worked so hard for this church, and, and everything's going so well. I mean, in spite of all the persecution, the church is exploding. Everybody's excited. There's energy. There's momentum. And you meet with Paul, and he says, some of you are going to turn away from the faith completely. You're going to do your best to blow this whole thing up. And I would guarantee, almost guarantee, that every single one of those people sitting there was like, not me. No way. But Paul doesn't say it might happen. He says it will happen. And so he says, therefore, because that's true, you've got to be alert. You've got to be on guard. And then he says, and remember, the whole context of this is, and I'm leaving. Paul's telling them all this, and you would think their response should be, okay, Paul, well then help us out. Come with us, come back to Ephesus, spend a few years to help us sort out this whole wolf-sheep thing, show us how it's done, get rid of the bad ones of us, I guess. Paul, lead us in this. But Paul's saying, I'm never going to see you again. So what do we do? Where do we turn? How are we going to move forward with this? Well, verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, you don't need me. As much as you're stressed about I'm leaving, as much as this hurts, as much as it hurts me emotionally, you don't need me. You need God, and you need the Scripture. And that in itself is sufficient. That's what you need. And Paul's trying to make this clear. You, you don't need... Look, in his day, Paul was. He was the original celebrity pastor. You don't need a mega pastor. You don't need a superstar leader. You need God... And you need the word. And then he leaves them with this. He reminds them that when he was in Ephesus, he was bivocational. He took care of his own personal financial needs through work outside of the church. Even though that made things a lot harder. Even though, and in some other places, so Paul, sometimes Paul would, would be in a city and he would actually um, be supported by the church there. But in Ephesus, at least, and in other cities as well, he chose to work to support himself as the church was started. Now, why does he point that out? It almost seems like out of context, right? I mean, he just told them this huge, massive... There's wolves coming in. Some of you are going to turn against the church. Why well, go back to this thing about, and remember, uh, I didn't take a salary. I think because he's making it really clear to them that they need to remember ministry is sacrifice. Leadership is sacrifice. And maybe, maybe he knew that among them, among the leaders, the ones who would be tempted, the ones who would drift away, the ones who would shift and go in the wrong direction, maybe he knew what was going to happen because they started to see the possibility for financial gain. 
because they would start to get more interested, just like any wolf, in what the church could give them instead of what they could give to the church. And so Paul wants to remind them, leadership in a church is not about what you can get. It's about sacrificing. He says all of this. This is extremely emotional. Everybody's crying, but he's got to go. And so they see him off, and he leaves. This is a very specific story about a very specific point in time, about a very specific church. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to those elders at that specific time. However, however, the warning that he gives is just as relevant and applies to us just as much today as it did then. And so we as a church today, as Trailhead Church, need to pay attention. We need to, as he says, pay careful attention, to keep watch over ourselves, to check and to see and to ask ourselves, Not has everything fallen apart, right? Because that's not how things happen. The question is, the question we have to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church, are we drifting? Are we slowly over time drifting away from where we should be? But here's the thing about drifting. When things change subtly and slowly over time, it happens very, very imperceptibly. It's really hard to notice small changes happening over time. Unless you have a fixed point to look at to get a sense of where you are. Unless there's something that you know isn't shifting that you can measure yourself in relation to, it's really hard to know whether you're shifting. We measure ourselves all the time, spiritually, financially, um, success-wise. I don't know if the word there should have been. But um, in all different sorts of ways, we try to measure and take stock of ourselves. The problem is most of us, we use a really bad point of reference. We compare ourselves to each other. The problem with that is if we're shifting or we're drifting away, the people we're measuring ourselves again are just as prone to drifting as we are. So it's a really bad point of reference to say, am I still where I need to be spiritually? Well, I guess compared to my friends, I'm doing pretty well. That's a poor, poor reference point because your friends can drift just as much as you. In fact, since they're your friends, they probably will drift in pretty similar ways and in similar patterns to you. Some of us, a lot of us then, um, we try to use the reference point then of, of leaders within the church. How do I compare to the elders? How do I compare to the deacons? How do I compare to my community group leader? But that's just as poor of a reference point because they're just as able to drift as any of us. There is only one fixed reference point 
that we can look to to ask ourselves, where am I and where should I be? And it is no human being at all. Paul makes it really clear. Let me show you. In in chapter 20, look at these three verses. Look at verse 21. This is the reference point. This is what we have to keep our eyes focused on. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Verse 24, sorry, Timothy. Uh, but I do not account myself, my life, of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then verse 32, we just read it, but again, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Hey, Paul was talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Why does he keep talking about the gospel? They're all elders in the church. They know the gospel, right? They've given their lives to it. Paul, give them something new. These are the elders. They've got that. But Paul knows, and we need to know and understand, we must constantly repeat the gospel to ourselves because the gospel is our fixed point of reference. It's the only fixed point point that we can look to to judge where we are and where we need to be. No other person, no other idea, no other group, only the gospel can tell us who we are and where we are and who we should be and where we should be. That's it, the gospel, nothing else. What is the gospel? What am I even talking about? It's this. Jesus Christ came to this earth And he took on flesh and he lived as a human being a totally, completely sinless and perfect life. The way we all should live, but we don't. Ever. As hard as we try and as much as we try to be perfect, we are not. Now, you know that. But Jesus came and he was. And yet, he allowed himself to be murdered, tortured, crucified to take the punishment that we deserve. Out of his love for us, he took the punishment. We should have been punished. We should be punished. He took the punishment for us. He substituted for us. He put himself in our place. And he died, and and after three days he rose again in total victory over death. And just as his death was a substitute that gives us, offers us forgiveness for our sins, his resurrection offers us victory over death as well in him. If we, as Paul phrases it in verse 21, repent toward God and have faith in Jesus Christ, if we believe that Jesus Christ did that for us, then we are in him, then we share in that victory with him, we share in that forgiveness with him, because of him. And that's the gospel. Nothing we can do will ever earn that, 
Nothing we could ever achieve, no matter how hard we, we, we can try to be really good, but we can't, but Jesus was. And in him, we can know God. We can have peace. We can have joy. We can have a life beyond this life because of what he did, not because of anything we do. That's the gospel. That's our fixed point. That's what we have to fight for. And that's what we drift from. We drift from that in our own lives. Anytime, and it's subtle, it's subtle, it's slow, it happens over time, it's not overnight, you don't go to bed believing the gospel and wake up totally, I'm, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't happen. It's subtle steps away in, in both directions. We, we drift, drift slowly toward believing maybe we can earn our own righteousness, maybe we can be good enough. We want to be good. We, we try to be good. Hey, maybe I'm being a little bit better. Maybe I'm doing okay. And we drift and we drift and we drift slowly and subtly toward the idea that we can improve ourselves. Or in the opposite direction, we drift slowly and subtly towards the idea that our sin is, is not that bad. It's not so bad that this, the, the creator of the universe would have to be brutally murdered to take the wrath that I deserve for it. It's, it's not that bad. Subtly, slowly, as we make allowances here and there, we drift and we drift and we drift. And this is why, this is why we must com- constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. Martin Luther even said that the Christian life is, is the process of just continually repenting and believing the gospel. Repenting of our sin, believing the gospel over and over and over. You never get past it. You never get so good and so holy and so spiritual that you're just done, you're accomplished, you've got it all figured out. We constantly have to remind ourselves of the gospel because it's the fixed point. It doesn't change. It won't shift. As a church, as a church, it's our whole purpose. It's our whole mission. It's why we exist. And we can drift slowly in other directions towards programs, towards, towards church being a Sunday thing, that we come in and we have friends and it's a social club. We've drifted towards a, a thing we do. We drift towards its, its social action and the good things that we can do. It starts out because in light of the gospel, we want to do good things. We want to show the gospel and what Christ has done for us to others, but it can become slowly over time to where we're just doing good things because we believe as a church that that's what it's all about. We can drift slowly away from the necessity of Christ's sacrifice for us, slowly drifting to where we get to a place where we don't even believe that the Scripture is true anymore, and maybe Jesus wasn't even really God. Maybe, maybe he didn't really even say all these things, but he's a good moral guide, and we drift, and it's slow. Again, you don't go to bed one night, as a church, I, I, I guess a church doesn't go to bed. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, this is a bad metaphor. Um, but anyway, it's not overnight. It doesn't just happen. It's not this church is doing and, and following Jesus, and then the next day they're just not. It's slow. It drifts. And without the focal point, without the fixed point of the gospel, we don't even see it happening. So, let me give you three ways 
that this applies to us, to Trailhead as a church today. First of all, for the leaders, for the elders, I mean, obviously he's talking to the elders, so for the elders, but also for the deacons, for the leaders of community groups, for everybody who has any kind of leadership position in the church. We need to fight for the gospel because it's bigger than your title. Okay, we've got to keep this clear. Ministry, ministry is not an opportunity to get fame or to get attention. Okay, now look, it's subtle. We, we, we drift. We start out serving out of our love for Jesus, out of our love for the church, out of our understanding of what God's done for us, and just out of the overflow of that, we want to serve. And, and God calls specific people to, to take leadership positions, and we, we take those positions because we want to serve. But then stuff happens. We get noticed. We get attention. We get praised. We get affirmations, and, and they just they feel good. It just feels good to have people telling you you're doing a good job. Or, or we start to feel a little bit of a sense of, of power. I'm in charge. People are following what I say. And subtly, over time, those good feelings that are a part of serving, I mean, it's good to, to enjoy and to to find joy in, and, and, and it's good to be affirmed when you're serving, but subtly over time, those things, they become intoxicating to us. And that's what we want. We want the high of being seen and being known and being in the spotlight or of being on the inside of being part of the central group of knowing what's going on and, and being one of the decision makers and being somebody who, who makes things happen. And we never would have guessed it. We never would have said, going into ministry, I want to get a leadership position so that everybody will think I'm awesome. But slowly over time, that position gets really, really important to us. And when we introduce ourselves to people and we tag that onto the end, hey, I'm Aaron. I'm one of the elders. I'm not. I'm just, that's an example. Sorry. You get it, right? Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm fill in the blank. I'm a deacon. I'm a community group leader. I'm a whatever because our identity becomes that title. Having a title as your identity is a really, really bad idea. Having the gospel as your identity is a really, really good idea. The gospel is so much bigger, it's so much better, it's so much more able to give you purpose and give you identity and give you satisfaction in your life. Your title is all about you. The gospel is all about Jesus. Hey, how, could, how is this possible that Paul could look at this group of men, these elders from Ephesus, 
and they have sacrificed so much for the gospel, and they've sacrificed so much to be here and listen to him and to talk to him. How could he look at them and tell them, some of you are going to turn away? Is it possible that he could say that because he could see it within his own heart? Is it possible that he focuses so much on his sacrifice because he wants to remind himself as much as them that leading in a church is about sacrifice? Did he know that some of the men there were going to get to a place where they wanted their leadership to be a position of comfort, not of sacrifice? If you can't see leadership as sacrifice, you shouldn't be in leadership. If your position leading in the church is more important than the gospel mission of the church, you shouldn't be in leadership. But there's more. Okay, so he's talking to the leaders. He's talking specifically to the elders. But this applies to all of us, and we all need to keep this clear. Church, family, we all need to fight for the gospel. We need to fight for the gospel because leaders need to be held accountable. We can, we can get to where we, as individuals, as a church, as a group, we're just so much dependent on the leaders to set the course, to make sure that we assume the leaders are fine, they've got this all figured out, And we don't keep watch on ourselves. We don't keep watch on the church. But leaders are humans. And they can drift. And if our, like we just said this, but if us, if we as a church, corporately, if our fixed point is the leaders, then if they drift, we drift. Now listen, when I talk about accountability here, let's be clear, okay? Um, There are men and women in this church who have been called by God to lead and to sacrifice And they are giving, they are giving their time, they are giving financially, they're giving emotionally so much to this church. They deserve our respect and our support, okay? When we use the word accountability, that's not a blank check to just air your grievances for whatever strikes you at the moment as an issue. Our fixed point is the gospel. Sometimes, sometimes, Leaders can drift. And humble, humble questions need to be asked about issues related to the gospel, not about issues related to your preferences. Okay? Leaders in the church don't need to be held accountable for what you like and don't like about the church. Okay? The church is not about your ideas of what it should be and what it should look like. And so it's not your goal. You're not called. You're not given permission. You're not being asked to make sure that the leaders are keeping the church the way you like it. But we all, all, and when we say church family, the leaders are as much a part of the family as any of us. We all have a responsibility to keep our eyes focused on the gospel. Are we headed in that direction? Are we on mission for the gospel? 
And then that corporately, but individually, and this is big, as members, each of us individually, we need to fight for the gospel in our own lives and in our own hearts because Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. When we lose our fixed point, when we take our eyes off of the gospel, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we get our eyes on individuals, and we start to look to them to give us what only Jesus can, to to give us what only the gospel can, We get into major, major problems. Paul, Paul addressed this. I want to look at um, a place where Paul addressed this in a different church, not in the church in Ephesus, but in, in the church in Corinth. He wrote this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, people had gotten in the church in Corinth to where they were fixing their eyes so much and trusting so much in the leaders of the church that they got to where there were divisions were starting to happen because they each had their own favorites, and, and because they were all clustering around like, I like this leader and I like this leader, and the problem with that is because those leaders are human, then it, there were going to be conflicts, and when there's conflicts, then instead of focusing in on Jesus, they were all splintering off in these other ways. And look what Paul says, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And look at his answer to this. This is huge. We need to hear this. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Hey, who are you following? As a church, who are, who are we following? As members, as individuals, you personally, in your heart, in your life, who are you trusting in? Somebody who died for you, somebody who who gave their life for you, somebody who rose again from the dead for you, someone who took your sins on a cross for you. And Paul could say it, he's the one writing the letter, so he could say, did I die for you? Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? We could ask the same question. I mean, did Steve Mizell die for you? Were the elders of this church crucified? Were you baptized in the name of Aaron Parks? I hope not. Was your mentor, your leader, your favorite author, did they give their life for you? Were you baptized in the name of John Piper? Or did Matt Chandler die on the cross for your sins? There's only one. There's only one person who did that for you. And so there's only one person worthy of your worship. What happens when you trust in humans instead of God? They let you down. They fail. And what happens when when leaders fall? What happens when they leave? What happens when they don't live up to your expectations of what they should be? 
Well, if your faith was in them, then your faith is shattered. Some of you, some of you are here this morning and, and you've been out of church for a while and you're, and you're maybe kind of coming back or checking things out, but you left church, you would even maybe say you walked away from the faith because someone you looked up to, someone you trusted, someone you placed a lot of faith in, failed. And I mean, I get it. We all do it. Because human leaders are visible. They're there. We can see them. And they're persuasive. Sometimes they're charismatic. They seem to have all the answers. They're leading. And it can be so easy to put our faith in them instead of the gospel. But they're people. They can't hold up that weight. They weren't made to be worshipped. And maybe, I don't know if this is paradoxical, but the more we worship people, the more likely we set them up to fall. It's really hard. I mean, look, it's really hard to... Somebody who teaches you the scriptures, somebody who, somebody who shared the gospel with you, and you believe the gospel, you have affection for them. You love them. You care about them. I mean, look what's going on with Paul as he's going through and talking to these people and telling them he's going to leave. They're, they're emotional. They love him. But Paul is saying this to them in Ephesus, but I'm leaving, and there has to be more There has to be more to your faith than me. And so for all of us, there has to be more to our faith than our leaders. The really, really good news about that is that we are invited not to place our faith in people, but in Jesus Christ the one who did die for us, the one whose name we were baptized in, the one who did live a perfect life, the one who did rise from the dead, the one who can meet our expectations, give us satisfaction, give us life beyond this life. But we drift. As we reflect today, and we take a moment to reflect, the question is pretty clear. Are you drifting? Have you drifted? Not have you drifted from your own idea of what your life should be like. Not have you drifted from somebody else's description of this is what a good Christian should be. Have you drifted from the gospel? Let that, let the gospel be your point of reference. Have you drifted from living in the light of what Jesus Christ did for you? Have you placed your faith in the wrong places and the wrong people? Leaders, have you allowed have you allowed your position to become more important than the gospel in your heart? 
Are you drifting? No matter how far you drift, Jesus is always there for you. Turn back to him. This is the invitation today. No matter how far you feel like you've gone, whether it's just small steps or or way off, place your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Oh God, we fail. Over and over and over again, we fail. In more ways than, than we even notice, we fail. And yet, you love us. And there's nowhere we could go, no distance we could run, that you won't come to us. So God, open our eyes this morning. Help us to have a clear and realistic and honest assessment of where we are. But more than that, open our eyes wide to see the glory of your goodness and your grace. And help us to run to that and to trust in you and to place our faith in you above any person, above any organization above anything that we could do ourselves. Help us to trust in you and you alone. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.